Hello and welcome to Queer as Fiction. My name is Jason. My name's Alice. I'm Eli. And today we're going to be talking about Alice Walker's 1982 epistolary novel, The Colour Purple. Before we begin, we have quite a few content warnings for this episode. Uh, there are mention- several mentions of sexual assault, racism, both specific and systemic, colonial occupation, violence, abusive relationships, death, incarceration and lynching, incest, and childhood sexual abuse. I think I've covered everything. Okay, so, The Colour Purple was written by Alice Walker, who is, in fact, still alive. She's doing really well for herself. She's 74, currently. Okay. Who is a novelist, poet, and activist. She is famous for coining the term womanist to mean a black feminist or feminist of colour in 1983, just after this novel was published. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um... For a bit of context about her, she grew up in rural Georgia, where both her parents were sharecroppers and the schools were segregated. Her family lacked access to a car, which meant an accident involving a BB gun when she was eight years old caused her to go blind in one eye due to a lack of medical attention. Okay. Despite the fact that uh, Alice Walker wrote a novel that is considered to be like an all-time classic, she mm. has never rested on her laurels in her writing or activism. Her most recent works were actually published in 2013. While her activism stretches from the 1963 March on Washington to being arrested outside the White House in 2003 oh, wow. during an anti-war rally in the lead-up to the Iraq War. So how old would she be in 2003? About 60? Uh, if she's 74 now, that was 15 years ago, so she'd be 59 at that time. Yeah. Um, I believe that she was at a rally with a bunch of other authors, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and they all got arrested, so that sounds yeah. like a wild ride. Yeah. Walker has had relationships with men and women during her life, uh, most famously including four-time Grammy-winning singer-songwriter Tracy Chapman. Oh, um, what? Yes. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. She describes herself as not being lesbian, bisexual, or straight, but curious um, in an interview that I found. Generally, like she was sort of talking about how she just loves women a lot, which I feel comes across quite a bit in this novel. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So The Colour Purple, yeah, was published in 1982. Um, it, as people are probably aware, it was a big deal. Uh, it won the 1983 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and the National Book Award for Fiction, two of the most prestigious awards in the US. The main character, Celie, was inspired by her step-grandmother Rachel, a woman who um, was, quote, battered down and beaten. Um, Mm -hmm. while her aunts inspired, collectively, the character of Shell. And the character of Albert was based on her grandfather. The whole framing device of the novel, so this novel is an epistolary novel where um, the letters are written firstly to God and then to uh, the sister of the main character, Nettie, Um, came from another black American writer, uh, Sojourner Truth, whose character Truth cried out having lost her children to slave owners and none but God heard her. Um, And that's sort of the basis of where this novel has come from. So, this plot summary is going to be fairly abbreviated because a lot happens in this novel. If you want more detail on very specific things, you're going to have to go and read it. It's not that long, it is quite an intense read, but uh, I found it quite enjoyable, so your mileage may vary. The plot of The Colour Purple follows sisters Celie and Nettie, a pair of young African-American women living in the American South in the early 20th century who were separated by circumstance for much of their lives, only to be reunited after many years and much hardship. Celie is sexually assaulted and beaten by the man she thinks is her father, a man later revealed very late in the novel to be named Alfonso. She has two children to this man who are taken away from her soon after birth. She is eventually married off to a widower, referred to initially as Mr., who is later revealed to be named Albert, who lusts after Nettie but accepts the older sister as he requires someone to look after his children. Albert is still in love with his former lover, Shug Avery, a jazz and blues singer who comes to stay with the family when she falls ill and is nursed back to health by Celie. Thus follows a romantic and sexual awakening for Celie, who has never experienced pleasure from sex with the abusive and emotionally distant Albert. And she finds herself uh, infatuated with Shug, who eventually reciprocates these feelings. The two begin a relationship, despite Shug's recent marriage to a man named Grady, and Shug helps Celie recover the letters Nettie has been sending her that have been hidden by Albert. As is revealed at this stage of the novel, Nettie was taken in by a missionary couple, uh, Corrine and Samuel, who have two young children, Adam and Olivia. These children are adopted, and the biological children of Celie. 
The family traveled with Nettie to Africa, where they start a Christian mission in a small village. Eventually, after Corrine dies and the village is destroyed by encroaching rubber farmers, the family returns to the United States, where Nettie is reunited with a now-single Sealy, Shug having left her for a 19-year-old man. Before this happened, however, Shug helped Seely start a sewing business, and Seely attained significant independence from her husband, as well as discovering that her and Nettie's true father was lynched when they were young, with Alfonso marrying the widowed his widowed wife and taking over his business and lands. The novel ends with the two sisters reunited, along with the various children they have raised and the friends they have made along their travels. And that's about as abbreviated as I could make that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot happens in this book. So much. Yeah. Good job. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, obviously that's quite an intense story, um, but it was one that uh, immediately resonated in the world of fiction and was adapted into a film of the same name in mm. 1985, which was quite quick. Yeah, really. mm, it is. Yeah, it is. I hadn't thought um, about that. That's very true. The film was directed by Steven Spielberg and stars Whoopi Goldberg, Danny Glover, and Oprah Winfrey and was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. However, it won precisely none. Oh, well... Which was, I at the time at least, equaled the record for most nominations without mm. a win. Have any of you guys seen this film? No. I have not, no. Okay, no, all right. This perceived snubbing ignited controversy because many critics considered it the best picture that year, including Roger Ebert. Best picture and director that year went to a movie called Out of Africa. Okay. An epic romance starring notable white people, Robert okay. Redford and Meryl Streep, because oh. of course it did. Oh, yeah. dear. Yeah. I was going to ask what it was up against. Yeah. I No, I wanted to look this up, and it was even worse than I imagined. Um, I actually did see an interview with Alice Walker where she basically said, look, I was kind of happy that it didn't win any Oscars because of their history as being yeah. such a racist institution. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And she was I talking am. about how the roles that... Uh, African-Americans had previously won a claim for had generally been Mm. roles as maids or as help or whatever. And so, you know, she sort of thought it was quite neat that it, you know, just sort of wrapped everything up. It was like, cool, got nominated for a bunch of awards, didn't win any, kind of just illustrated the point Mm. more rather than kind of playing into Hollywood's hands, I guess. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, you know, I thought thought was reasonably interesting. Um... As might be apparent from uh, what I just said, um, Walker continued to be involved in the critical dialogue surrounding the novel after its publication, and in the 10th anniversary edition, she added lyrics from the Stevie Wonder song, Do Like You, as an epigraph to illuminate the ways in which the characters learn from one another and to signal the pedagogical potential of the novel, which is, I think, quite fitting for a novel that's been used in schools extensively, despite, well, and I guess because of that, it is 17th on the American Library Association's list of most frequently challenged or banned books mm. for reasons that, like, are both racist and somewhat understandable, yeah. depending on the age of the children involved, I would yeah. Feel. Like, it is some pretty confronting material, and I feel like if you gave that to kids, even high school kids, they may not be able to grapple with what's in there, and it may not be productive. On the other hand, I don't think we should ever ban a book from a library. Yeah, but basically. Yeah. Okay, so, we've talked a bit about the plot, we've talked a bit about the publication of the novel. Let's now just sort of get everyone's broad reactions as to what you all thought about this, because we've all read this, Alice quite recently, Mm -hmm. me slightly less recently, and Eli a bit less recently than that. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe we'll start with Alice. Even though it is a classic, I knew nothing about this book going in, like, absolutely nothing. Like, I'd always heard The Colour Purple is, like, a very important novel about uh, women loving women and about women of colour but that was literally all I knew like I had no idea what I was in for at all okay how did you how did you feel when you were reading it then because like I find its tone really interesting and it's dealing with about the most like horrific things that human beings can go through but it's not this like it doesn't feel like just a parade of like shocking images it's for what it's about it's like a very uplifting book yeah, I, I would say so. And yeah, I agree with that kind of um, what you're saying, Eli. I think that it doesn't parade the grotesqueness mm. of what is happening mm. and kind of invite audiences to like look upon it and be horrified. It more invites them into the emotional yeah. reality of the situation. Mm. Yeah. And this is something that you see debates about, for example, when, like, say, 
rape is depicted in any media in a kind of graphic way, there'll often be a debate with one side saying we had to show how horrific it was and the other side saying this was gratuitous, we didn't need to see this as such a kind of voyeuristic Yeah, absolutely. And The Colour Purple does not do that. Like, for example, it talks about sexual assault and the main character is raped several times and that it's clear that that happens, but it's in no way gratuitously described or anything. You just know mm. that it happens and then you sort of more know how she's dealing with it. Yeah. And I think it's like a, a testament to her skill as a writer that mm. you can see the intense, brutal effect that things like that have on people without it ever being described or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. And um, this is probably something where one of us at least probably should have watched the movie, most notably me, um, but I <laughs> kind of ran out of time. That's um, okay. Getting movies is hard these days. True. Um, <laughs> but I, I have read that the movie um, did cop a bit of criti- okay. more criticism yeah. in this regard, which I guess is kind of inevitable given it's a visual medium yeah. where mm, you yeah. can't just have Celie sit and write a note about yeah. how she was sexually assaulted. Yeah. You're probably are going to depict that on screen. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. It um, is interesting to think about adapting it to a film. Hmm. Like hmm. that would have been very difficult to do it justice. Yeah. Well, so much of it is about like Celie's inner monologue, basically. Like mm. her letters to God is just like what she's thinking all the time. Like, how do you put that in a movie? Yeah, and that actually quite neatly brings us to the first sort of thematic point that I wanted to cover, which was the idea of the use of language in mm-hmm. the book, because that is something that I yeah I have no idea how you would go about adapting that. Mm. Um, because obviously you see throughout the novel there's kind of an increasing complexity of Celie's letters, mm. where she mm. starts off with like half a page, and by the end she's writing like with still her own style, but... Yeah very much more complex ideas and expressing um, more emotions and more ideas in her writing. Mm, Um, mm. And I thought it was interesting and, you know, like quite encouraging to see that um, Alice Walker makes a point to say that she continues to use her sort of traditional folk speech Mm. even when she does become more sort of educated. Mm. Like there's that scene where... um, uh, Jareen and Darlene, who are her assistants when she has her shop, finally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they attempt to kind of police her speech, and she doesn't really understand why speaking in a way that is more acceptable to white people would make her happier. Yeah. I thought that was a really good scene. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Yeah. Me too. And it's just not... I really like books that are written in a, like, um, you know... I don't know how to express it, but we all know what I'm talking about. In a little, like, phonetic way of expressing how people spoke, as opposed to, like, quote-unquote, correct grammar and spelling and so forth. And you don't see it very often. Yeah, and it really gets across the character. And I thought it really mm, absolutely. also made the distinction between her chapters and Nettie's chapters more yeah. interesting as yeah. a result. Mm. Um, so there's a lot happening in this novel, and that's just, like, one tiny thematic point. Um... I guess let's talk a little bit about uh, the queer stuff because that is our the job. premise of our podcast. <laughs> um, so there's a couple of aspects to this. So the first is talking about um, the like the role that gender plays in terms of gender roles mm-hmm. in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously we see uh, Sophia and her sisters um, introduced into the novel and they represent a very... Um, sort of masculine approach to dealing with men because a lot of this novel is about how women deal with men and how they get past the restrictions that men impose upon them um and yeah we see Sophia and her sisters opting to fight them on physical grounds in order to carve out a space for themselves in society um and we see that this works within the context of their own family but we also see that it struggles when faced with the kind of overarching sort of white patriarchy that the society is being run by um so obviously we see that sophia gets um brutally assaulted and then um put into prison and then um effectively for enslaved to a family for quite a long time as a as a result direct result of her sort of aggressive um stance towards men Mm. you said it works within the context of Sophia's own family but we do also see this kind of conflict with Sophia and her husband who is 
Harper's. Yeah, Harper, that's his name, who is Celia's um, stepson. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I meant her family in terms of when she's being raped. Oh, so, I understand. Yeah, every time we see that whole family, we see that the women are being allowed to, or, well, sorry, that the women have forced themselves into a position where they are able to take on power and responsibility mm. within the family. Yeah. But, yeah, no, obviously we do see that this is quite a radical approach and, um, it, yeah, it does encounter a lot of resistance when Sophia comes out of sort of her own family unit. Um, and then, yeah, when she tries to have the same approach uh, in her relationship with Harpo, um, mm. that becomes somewhat problematic, although you could argue that that um, might have been successful were it not for the intervention of outside forces as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, like it doesn't not work. You know what I mean? Like it, there's an interesting period of back and forth now. Yeah, yeah, mm. definitely. But I think that's one of the very good things about this book. It's like that relationship between Sophia and Harpo where he's kind of like, as a man, I'm basically expected to beat my wife. Mm. And she's like, I won't stand for that. And the fact that you get a back and forth and you get like Celie coming in and even as a woman saying, well, you should hit her. Like yeah. you get all that complexity in there. There's no like black and white situation there. Yeah, definitely. That's, yeah. Yeah. And then so the second approach that we see um, in terms of how to deal with men in society um, as women is comes from Shug, obviously. Um, and so Shug represents this kind of less physical resistance, simply refusing to be owned by the men around her and using her words and her charm to avoid the kind of abusive captivity faced by women such as Seely. Um, and obviously... Shug kind of has some advantages that let her do that, right? So, like, she's a really talented singer and she seems to have some... In, she maybe had some independent wealth before she um, became a singer or maybe she just used used her natural talents to mm. get more. But maybe she was trained in singing. It's not 100% clear in the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely clear that she uses that and uses kind of the way that people want her to be able to kind of get out of different situations. Yeah. Um, and then we... And then, of course, we see the relationship that Shug and Seely have. So um, this is, I would say, quite an important part of the book. We'll get a little bit later into some of the reactions to this novel, but some of which downplay the importance of this relationship. Okay. okay. Um, as does the film adaptation, oh, okay. for what it's worth, where apparently they kiss, but it, nothing else happens. Well, that's disappointing. Okay. Yeah, which is a little disappointing, but not altogether unsurprising. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we see in, um, in Shug's relationship with Celie a path forward without men that doesn't seek to replicate the ideals of masculinity. So we see that their relationship is largely built on kind of thoughtfulness and compassion and mutual support for one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see throughout the novel that um, perhaps, and perhaps this is Alice Walker's kind of general stance, or perhaps this is me reading too much into things. <laughs> um, it's hard to tell. Um, but it does seem like she sees this kind of, kind of more incremental approach as perhaps more effective, um, certainly in terms of where we sit at the end of the novel, um, in that it's harder for society to confront because they're not necessarily um, actively going out yeah. and hitting people and they're not necessarily like okay. doing anything beyond that. Um, and, you know, the two women remain married to their respective partners during their relationship and... Um, simply kind of, you know, fit their relationship within the confines of the existing Mm. society that Mm -hmm. they're in. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, yeah, I found kind of interesting in terms of how that relationship plays out. Mm. I think that is an interesting thing to say because if you're talking about, and I don't know if I agree that Alice Walker is making a, or if you even asserted that, but you Mm. thought that was a suggestion, that Alice Walker is making a kind of dichotomy between a more kind of violent out there resistance to Mm. society's restrictions and a kind of more personal, like personal relationships resistance to society's restrictions. Yeah, so you've got the relationship um, 
between Chug and Celia and to move a little bit more into depth on that. Obviously, that relationship represents, um, as I mentioned in the plot summary, a sexual awakening mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Celia. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think it was uh, a very, like, clear way of portraying that where she just kind of relentlessly hammered home the idea that, yeah, whilst Shog appreciates men and women, Celia, whether because of her background or whether just, um, you know, like nature versus nurture, mm. but um, certainly has just absolutely no interest in yeah. them. And as the novel wears on, becomes ever more kind of um, sort of assertive in terms of how she talks about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you guys think about the depiction of that relationship? I thought an interesting thing about that relationship is that it, like you said, they it was downplayed in the movie and in the book. Like obviously, it happens in the book and it's important to them. But it's now kind of the fact that it's between two women, like is never made a big deal of. When it, they're talking about the fact that she is interested in women, it's much more kind of a reflection on the toxicity of the masculinity around her than it ever is a discussion about kind of what might be Celie's identity in terms of sexuality or anything like that. Yeah, I guess, like, in terms of her defining herself, it does tend to come kind of in a rejection of men more mm. than in a... Yeah. I, although uh, I would say it's also, uh, like, she also very much kind of worships Shog and worships yeah. femininity yeah. in general. So, I don't know. I think that the I like yeah, I agree that it's not um I guess because it doesn't encounter the usual kind of um homophobic resistance mm. in as much of a form as you would usually see in these kinds of stories. But I think there's still a kind of clear defining of her identity to some extent. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, I don't know. I think you're right in that it's just difficult to separate out the like nature versus nurture or however you want to articulate it in this setting like obviously her sexuality and her experiences with sex are going to be impacted by uh, the things she's had to experience by the time she ends up meeting Mm. Shuck like yeah I I don't think you can separate the two out Mm. Um, but I think there's also a clear like from the first time she sees her picture she's just like yes (laughs) (laughs) that's true she holds the picture and all that yeah yeah no there's definitely an aspect to which and i mean the way that she kind of does pursue shog Mm. yeah um she's definitely like attracted to shog that's like from the moment she sees her right yeah and it's and it's before she really understands that much about sexual attraction in general yeah shog then educates her about that so yeah I, i guess it is kind of a very like clear like regard like perhaps her attraction to men has been shaped by her experiences or her lack of attraction Mm. but her attraction to women and her attraction to shug in particular does seem to come from within her and from Mm. um feeling like active feelings for women rather than just a lack of feelings for men yeah Mm. yeah i guess i'm just so used to queer novels where if somebody like discovers their attraction to the same gender for the first time you have this whole like oh no what am i feeling does this mean i'm gay and you just don't get that in this book (laughs) and so yeah yeah it's interesting because it's sort of like it all is as you mentioned very much in her head and about Mm. her feelings and so forth but it's not at least i guess at the point where she's first meeting um, shook and all of that about like she doesn't have these kind of like very articulate internal monologues about like well this is where my life is going at the moment and this is yeah. why I think about that <laughs> given the current uh, cultural climate or anything like that and that doesn't mean that those themes aren't successfully conveyed but you're right like it doesn't do it in the way that we're accustomed to books yeah. doing it necessarily and there was a quote that you pulled out when you were reading it that you said to me and I'm trying to think what it was. It was something about somebody saying to Celie, it's like a third of the way or half the way through the novel, like maybe you can do this within this setting, but what would the world think? And she said, I never thought about the world before. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, she she does say something along the lines of, I never thought about the world before. And I think that's a really interesting sort of 
because she has had this upbringing where she's been deprived of so much information and deprived of education and deprived of a lot of things that she kind of doesn't necessarily understand what normal relationships kind of look like because like her relationships haven't been normal Mm. and I think she's somewhat aware of that even when she's even quite early in the book yeah and I guess then with her relationship with Shog she just kind of takes it as its own thing like it's not in the context of queer women in the world or anything it's just Mm. her and Shog in their home yeah Mm. um that actually is that idea of her kind of um lack of knowledge of the wider world um brings us actually reasonably neatly um, (laughs) to talking about the next thematic point where we start to get into um, Nettie's chapters of the novel. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, just when you thought the novel had been a lot. (laughs) She's a missionary in Africa. Yeah, so now that we've talked a little bit about gender, um, although actually, no, we should talk, um, like, I think there's probably one more point to talk about in terms Mm. of the... um, queer and gender Mm -hmm. themes within the novel. So I guess the other thing to talk about is the uh, two male characters in the novel, Harpo and Albert, who both experience um, to varying degrees and with some regression in the form, in Harpo's case, um, a sort of awakening in terms of their acceptance of uh, a more active role that women can play within a family unit and within society. Um, so we see by the end of the novel that Albert has kind of grown to accept and um, appreciate uh, Celie's talents and Celie's sort of drive and motivation and all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get into a little bit later how realistic people have found that um, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the critical reaction. But... I did think that there was at least an attempt to kind of flag that when you hear Shug t- talking about Albert um, earlier in the novel, where she talks about how, you know, he used to be this really lovely, tender person. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, she talks about... She actually talks about him cross-dressing at one point. Yeah, which I yeah. Quite yeah. Interesting. yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Um, and so we see that, you know, maybe once he was a man who was a bit more comfortable with um, less defined gender roles, mm. and then you know, things have changed by the time that he meets Celia to the point where, you know, he is abusive and mm. sexually assaults her. Yeah. And then by the end of the novel, we see that he's kind of, you know, moderated back into um, someone who's a lot more accepting. Mm. And I think we can kind of see this maybe more clearly or mirrored in Harpo's kind of character arc, mm. where he starts out being kind of quite gentle and he's absolutely devoted to Sophia Mm. and then there's this part where he kind of is saying she keeps talking back to me and I don't know what to do and Celia says you've got to hit her because that's how Celia understands and Um, I found it interesting that because I believe that wasn't Celia's first reaction her first mm. reaction was to sort of ask him him, you know well what's the problem like is she saying things that are incorrect is she you know doing anything wrong and he was kind of like no, but she's talking back to me. Yeah. And yeah. it was then after that that um, Celia's then like, okay, well then hit, hit, hit her. And then, yeah, he obviously goes through that phase of trying to bulk up. Yeah. Um, which I was very confused by, um, like, the first sort of few pages of that where he just sort of kept eating a lot of food. Yeah, yeah that was very strange. I didn't actually get what he was trying to do, which maybe it's just me being I didn't idiot, get it either. But... <laughs> well, you've got to really pay attention mm. in this book to get, like everything that happens and why everyone thinks things and so mm, but yeah. it's all very brief <laughs> it is very brief yeah um, um but yeah i think that interaction between like Seely and i guess society more general and harpo where he's kind of told you can't be so gentle to your wife you have to hit your wife that's how you treat your wife you can imagine that albert may have gone through something similar where he's kind of been originally a man who was kinder to shog and less strictly confined by gender norms and society's gradually taught this toxic masculinity to him yeah yeah and I, yeah i think those yeah those two things like shug's testimony and also the arc that harpo goes through throughout the novel are kind mm-hmm. of you know alice walker flagging to us that hey maybe there's a bit more to albert than 
you see at the start of the novel. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so with that now all done, let's talk a little bit about the other as- the other major aspect of the novel, um, which is race relations and colonialism. Oh, cool. Um, so, yeah, things are not getting more lighthearted from no. here. So, yeah, we do see in the novel that um, Nettie's chapters form a kind of counterpoint to um, Celie's chapters, uh, where Celie is, for a large portion of the novel, confined in terms of her education and confined in terms of what she's able to find out about the wider world. Mm. We talked a bit before about how, you know, she doesn't even really think about what the world thinks. Um, Nettie. Nettie, on the other hand, is forced to confront what lots of different people think about her and what lots of different people think about each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so firstly, when she's um, simply working as a maid and then uh, very quickly once she is a missionary in Africa. And, you know, we see this really quickly where people um, assume uh, that she is in a relationship with... Samuel. Samuel. Um but then also in terms of people assuming the role that she plays and then also just people's general assumptions about different racial groups. And so we see this in terms of obviously white people's assumptions about African-Americans, but also then when they actually reach Africa, um, the Native Africans' assumptions about um, African-Americans as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. and vice versa. Um which I found was a really interesting dynamic that we don't see explored all that much. Um, this is possibly a bit crass of me, but it reminded me a little bit of the dynamic we see in Black Panther um, in terms mm-hmm. of the kind of difference in perspective of African-Americans and people who've... Um, grown up in Africa. Yeah, and mm-hmm. people who've grown up uh, in Africa. I mean, there's certainly, like, few enough major cultural reference points for that particular relationship that Mm. I don't think Mm. is particularly crass. (laughs) Not that, you know, I'm not, like, final say on that, but... (laughs) It is just something that, I mean, and I'm sure this media is out there, but in terms of media that's readily available that we as Australians consume, it's something that I just never seen depicted hmm. yeah so I don't really have a point of reference to think about this frankly <laughs> that's <laughs> like yeah, one that's... of the only examples I have of the relationship between African Americans who travel to Africa for whatever reason yeah yeah okay that's pretty reasonable and you know certainly is one aspect of why the novel I feel still feels quite fresh even though it's mm. you know 36 years old. Yeah, it's still something that's not hugely explored in mainstream media. Yeah. No, I was just thinking, and this isn't, like, that useful, that it's so amazing how short this book is. Like, it just does so much. It does. And it also does so much, but it doesn't feel like it's, you know, putting any of these issues in for the sake of it. Or, like, they all feel like they're... All the issues that are covered are, like treated in reasonably depth and, like, well-respected. But there's just so much in there. Yeah, okay. Well, that's an interesting uh, thing to say. We're now going to talk a little bit... Well, actually, for the rest of the episode, largely, we're going to be talking about the reactions to this novel. Okay. Um, I thought it was valuable to have a fairly significant section talking about the reactions to this novel, given that um, that way we could get the perspective of some African-Americans. Mm, yeah. Um, in lieu of having any on our panel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the initial reaction to this novel that was very important, so I, having just said that we're going to be talking about the reaction of uh, <laughs> African-Americans, the first person we're going to be talking about their reaction to this novel is, in fact, a white person. Um, but that's because their first reaction kind of shapes a lot of the critical discourse, and that's um, Gloria Steinem, the... Oh, okay. um, famous American feminist and journalist Mm -hmm. who wrote about the book for um, Ms, the magazine that she co-founded soon after its publication. Um, And her praise drove considerable interest in the novel among white media and the feminist movement. Um, And alongside Alice Walker's assertion of her own womanist identity, um, the word that she innovated to distinguish black feminism from white feminism, 
um, this really drove the book's status as a kind of, you know, urtext of the feminist movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think Steinem says a lot of things about this novel, and she basically praises every aspect of it. Um, it's described in later sort of uh, summaries of criticism of this novel as kind of one of the most relentlessly positive reviews that's ever been written. <laughs> Aggressively positive. <laughs> Um, but I thought, um, one thing that she wrote that I thought was really interesting and that really, um, hammered home why I enjoyed this novel so much was that, uh, she praised the way that the novel was written not only about the lower classes, but for them and was populist in the best sense, um, is the way that she described it. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really, um, like actually quite a good point to make about this novel. Um, in that we see a lot of novels, like great American novels, written yeah. about poor people, but mm. they're not really accessible in the language that they use. Mm. Um, and, yeah, this novel very much does not fall into that. Mm. Mm. Definitely hadn't thought about, but, yeah. Um, I'll give a couple of other points of praise this novel before we go into dealing with the fairly substantial amount of criticism that mm-hmm. has accrued over the past 30 years. Um, so uh, Mel Watkins and Mary Emma Graham, who are both um, African-American critics, um, both uh, give a fair amount of praise, although they also, as you will find later on, give some criticism as well. But um, Watkins attributes the credibility and emotional power of the novel to Seeley's folk voice. So, again, we're seeing that the voice that Walker imbues Seeley with is something that, even among critics, tends to be fairly universally acclaimed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like if you were the sort of person who was going to complain about the voice that this novel was written in, like, there's nothing about this novel you're going to like. You're reading the wrong book if you have a problem with that. Yeah, yeah. And I think generally, you know... I. I I don't have any critics in critique in here that's from like, you know, white supremacists because I don't feel like that's particularly yeah. valuable yeah. critique. Cool. Um, good. Good, good. <laughs> Did you read some? No. Okay. <laughs> we just don't need that in our lives in any way. There's definitely some critiques in here that we'll get to a little bit later on that are somewhat questionable, but no, nothing to that level. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. Um, and. Uh, Mary McGram thought the structure of the novel was masterful and that overall it was outstanding. Um, oh, and Watkins also, um, just because we're going to see a fair bit of criticism of this, uh, thought that Nettie's letters helped broaden and reinforce the theme of female oppression, which I thought is a fairly good point because, yeah, we do see female oppression occurring in different forms of societies um, through Nettie's chapters. I think the thing with Nettie's letters is, like, the book could have functioned perfectly well without the whole missionary in Africa thing. <laughs> like, it... It added to the book, but it added because it added a whole other facet. It wasn't kind of a... I guess it's exploring the same themes in a different setting, but it wasn't necessarily adding more depth to the discussion of, like, race and gender in America that was being had. It was having a kind of adjacent discussion. See, I tend to fall on the side of being fairly positive about these chapters. Oh, yeah, I'm very positive about these chapters. Well, I'm not and... saying these chapters are bad. I'm just <laughs> no, saying... No. Um, and specifically because I think that they do... Pro- like, that they're not just providing another perspective. They're providing a perspective from the place where African-Americans have originated and from mm-hmm. that perspective, right? So I think that the fact that we're now seeing in Nettie's chapters, you know, the origins of where Mm -hmm. slaves have been taken from Mm -hmm. their homes to America and we're seeing the societies that they, that, you know, that, or at least that are the um, descendants of those societies. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that we see a lot, it allows for those moments when Nettie talks about how, you know, there's this rich history and culture to black people Mm. that, you know, someone like Seely is not aware of because of the displacement of peoples and the Mm. institution Mm. of slavery. So even once those institutions are starting to be broken down, it's still hard for black people to engage with their own rich history because they're not 
able to access it because it's removed geographically. Okay, that's true, that's true, yeah. There is a bit with Olivia, Celia's daughter, and she has a friend among the people they're staying with in Africa, and her friend tells her all these stories from her own culture, and Nettie writes to Celia, Olivia wanted to tell stories in return, but she felt like she didn't have any. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, like, very clearly lines up with what you're saying, yeah. Let's move on to some of the criticism that the novel has faced. So probably the largest critique that I found in terms of sheer volume of different criticisms, but also in terms of the place it had within the sort of critical canon um, surrounding this novel, uh, came from uh, African-American literary historian Trudia Harris. Mm -hmm. And she wrote in 1984 that the novel had been canonized by the mainstream press and that this universal acclaim from predominantly white media and audiences made it hard for black women to critique the work without feeling like doing so was a desertion of the race and the black woman writer. Which, up to this point of her criticism, I was kind of on board. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, like, yeah. Like that, we'll, certainly, if we pause at this point, because I'm sure you're about to say something very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that seems... Very feasible and, and fair enough, so I'm interested to see where this is about to go. Yeah, so she definitely makes some really good points uh-huh. about the way that mainstream white culture will only ever allow there to be one yeah. black mm-hmm. author. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, okay. She talks a lot about that Yeah, and how it tends to be that, you know, you have this one author and they're really famous for a couple of years and then they're kind of thrown away by uh-huh. society. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, like, you, we definitely see this happen quite a bit, particularly with minority um, mm-hmm. artists. Mm-hmm. But then she got into her criticisms of the novel itself and this is where, you know, like, obviously there are a lot of different perspectives on this novel and some of the critiques that she has are reflected in other people's critiques, but some of them are... Uh, unique to her writing. Like, her main critique is that the character of Celie is too passive and that no real black woman would ever have endured such violence without retaliation. I mean, we know that Alice Walker based this character on women that she knew in her own family and the experiences that they'd had. So, you know, obviously some real women did have these experiences. I just feel like that implies a value judgment of women who don't retaliate to use her word against violent oppression mm. in a way that mm. I'm not 100% comfortable with yeah I, um, I thought that that was going a little bit too far in yeah. terms of the perspective on Celia as a character do you have in front of you any more specific aspects of it that she like because we've talked about how Celia becomes more assertive I was going to say assertive but I'm not sure that's like exactly what I want but you know like she kind of gains some ground within her own family Mm. as time goes on was that a critique of Celie overall or like Celie at the start of the novel or were there specific things that Celie did that didn't resonate with her as being realistic or critical yeah so this is actually getting to the the last thing that I was going to say about her criticism but I'll bring it up now because it directly responds to what you just said which is that ultimately Harris finds the character of Celie unrelatable and thinks her story constitutes a fairy tale masquerading as realistic fiction okay so she finds the ways in which Silly attains independence and freedom mm-hmm. to be fundamentally unrealistic. She thinks that it's a bit of a cop-out, that the ending was unrealistic, and mm. that the, yeah, like, all of the things that go right for Silly later in the novel mm-hmm. were just mm-hmm. ludicrous and were just ways for Walker to write herself out of a hole, effectively, I, and I'm... still have a happy ending. I understand that criticism. Like, the novel ends with the whole family gathered, I think it's on the 4th of July? Yeah. Yeah, the novel ends with the whole family gathered on the 4th of July for, like, basically a family reunion, and all these men who have been abusing these women in various ways throughout the novel are there, and the women are all there, and everyone's kind of depicted as this this one big happy family. And during the kind of closing of the book, Celia's inherited a nice house, and she's started a successful business, and all these things do happen kind of quite... I feel... How to say it? No, I I get where you're coming from there. And I think that certainly um, Alice Walker has said that she did find the most difficult aspect of writing the novel to be making sure that Silly was reunited with her children by the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to recognise that 
Silly achieves incremental successes throughout the novel. Yeah. And it's only right at the end where she gets anything that could be termed like, you know, a somewhat deus ex machina happy ending uh, where she receives a house. Like, her efforts to start a business are something that comes from within her and her efforts to, you know, reform her relationship are things that come from her and from her relationship with Shug. Yeah, I just kind of found that this was... Harris being somewhat dismissive of the more passive forms of resistance that oh, yeah, Silly yeah. takes throughout the novel. And mm-hmm. given that she claims in her piece that the novel advocates passivity and silence in the face of violence and oppression and, you know, perpetuates the flawed ideal of the American dream being accessible even to the poorest and most marginalised in society. The second aspect of that I kind of mm-hmm. understand where she's yeah. coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly there's a bit of... Well, you know, if you're a good person and you work hard, then, you know, whilst life might be hard for a time, things will eventually come around. Yeah, yeah. I think there's an aspect to that which is a legitimate criticism, but I also think that generally she's kind of underestimating the importance of, you know, less flashy, less aggressive forms of resistance. Yeah. And I think we talked a little bit earlier about whether or not we thought that Alice Walker was making a value judgment out which of those forms of resistance was more useful. Mm. And I don't think that it was a strong enough condemnation Mm. or Mm. praise for either to really be considered to say, well, no, she's saying only one of these has merits. Yeah. Um, In my opinion, at least. Yeah, no, Mm. I agree with that. I mean, I feel like, yeah, like we've talked multiple times about how there's just a lot going on here that's dealt with quite briefly Mm. and I think that the topic of how does one resist in situations such as the women in this novel find themselves in obviously isn't an easy topic with a right answer or not and so I don't think that Alice Walker is outright condemnatory of any of them but I also don't think therefore that it's like that surprising that other women would read this and have very strong reactions to that aspect of it yeah yeah absolutely the last aspect of Harris's criticism that I want to talk about is that Harris finds the novel to be somewhat of a checklist of groups she thinks Walker is shouting out. So Harris finds the racial aspect of this novel to be the only thing that is really important. She doesn't particularly care about the gender politics of this novel. She doesn't care about the queer aspect of this novel. Do and you so, know if Harris herself is queer? I don't. Okay. I would assume not, judging by the way she talks about the queer community. Mm-hmm. But... She also doesn't seem to register that Alice Walker is queer Mm -hmm. in this criticism Mm -hmm. because, yeah, she says that, you know, Walker is shouting out the queer community through the relationship between Celia and Chug and shouting out the male feminists through the redemption of Harpo and Albert and, you know, talking about, you know, the anti-colonialists through the Netty chapters and all, like, et cetera, et cetera. And she just kind of finds it to be a bit of a checklist rather than Mm. things that sort of organically merited inclusion in the novel. I can't remember if it's Harris or one of the other critics, but I think it's Harris. Yeah, no, it is. Um, Who refers to the relationship between Shog and Celie as kind of, I've forgotten the exact wording to use, but basically talking about how it's like the height of silly romanticism. What? And she just thought that it was a very unnecessary inclusion in the novel, which to me is kind of ignoring the importance of that relationship to Celia's development. I mean, I think there's two things here. First is that so often people, if a queer theme is not the centre of a novel but happens to be there, it will be critiqued as unnecessary and, oh, why did they have to bring this queer stuff in? It was a perfectly good novel without having to be queer Mm. and that's a common thing that happens to queer media Mm. and also I think that's just missing kind of Celia's relationship with Shug is as we were saying before it's really tied up with Celia's relationships with different genders and how Celia interacts with men and how Celia interacts with women and like Mm. I think like all of the things she lists off there as being like shout outs or kind of like unnecessary inclusions if that's not distorting what no that's that's very um kind of almost goes back to what alice was saying about how you know you could remove netty's letters netty's letters and it would still function as a novel you could remove any of the things she lists and it would still function but it would be saying less about the themes that those parts interacted with Mm, mm. you know like she's formed something where the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts or whatever that's yeah yeah, no absolutely um and i i think that like 
it, it is fair because we, we you know we've said it, it is quite terse in its language and it's quite a short book and it deals with everything under the sun I think it is legitimate to kind of be like, well, this this is of particular interest to me and I'm frustrated on a personal level that it didn't go into this more. Mm-hmm. But I think then to take that as a like objective criticism of the book or of Alice Walker is incorrect. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, give it, it's not like this is a 900-page novel that meanders off into, you know, 100-page tangents on colonialism. It's mm. I feel like every aspect of the book links to other aspects mm. of the book. Absolutely. We what we will get into a little bit that is a criticism that Harris has, but it's not a criticism that's at all unique to Harris, is the role that men play in the book. So Mary Emma Graham, who we mentioned earlier, was overall praised the book quite a lot. She was somewhat disappointed in the novel's lack of exploration of the intersexual intersectional causes of oppression for black women, claiming that analysis that identifies men as the sole source of female oppression and professes that mere personality change in individuals is the remedy is misguided. Gender oppression cannot be separated from racial and economic oppression that black people experience and that black women face in a very special way. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets to a more interesting place in terms of criticising this novel, because certainly... I didn't necessarily read it in this way, but I could certainly see how you could read it as a 180 pages or whatever it is, condemnation of black men. Mm. And certainly that is the way that some people have read it. And yeah, one of Harris's more interesting comments is that she thought that the novel simply added a freshness to many of the ideas circulating in the popular culture and captured in racist literature that suggested that black people have no morality when it comes to sexuality, the black family structure is weak if existent at all, the black men abuse black women, and the black women who may appear to be churchgoers are really lewd and lascivious. That whole sentence was a massive trip, in my opinion, because it goes from fairly legitimate criticisms to criticisms that seem to just be veiled homophobia to more legitimate criticisms again back to <laughs> yeah. homophobia. Yeah. So Okay. Yeah. How should we break this down? <laughs> so So yeah, I think you know, like it's hard for me to obviously be the judge of what constitutes the perpetuation of stereotypes. Yeah. I thought that all the characters in this novel experience degrees of complexity that where mm. their situation and their background and everything that's happened to them and everything that is happening to them explains the actions that they're taking. Yeah, yeah. Like we were saying before with the the men like Harpo abusing Sophia that's so clearly painted as something society has taught him. Like, I don't think anywhere in here are we kind of told that, say, black men lack morality and are violent. We're shown how black men are taught violence and then how this negatively affects black women. Yeah, and I think kind of the response to that is to say, well, the novel is still saying that, you know, like all black men, because of the influence of society, Mm. are violent. And I, you know, and I don't agree with that personally, but... I can certainly see how you might be a little disappointed to see, at like, if you were a black writer in the 80s, to mm. see this novel come out and become the representation mm. of African-American yeah. culture mm-hmm. and to have it not have any truly, like, unambiguously positive representations mm. of um, black masculinity. What about Samuel? Although, yeah, in that case, I guess you point them towards Samuel, so... Yeah. Um, but I feel like the problem there is potentially less the colour purple and more that it is the one black novel mm, of the 80s mm, that is allowed yeah. to be canonised or, or whatever you want to say. Yeah, and that's certainly the half of Harris's article that I found was fairly compelling mm, um, as opposed mm. to specific critiques of the novel. Mm. Yeah, I think um, if, you, if you combine those two arguments that Harris is making, then kind of the solution is if we didn't canonise one black novel then the presentation in one novel wouldn't be perpetuating, st- perpetuating stereotypes so much. I yeah. don't know whether Harris combines these points effectively or not. But Yeah. And, I mean, you know, as people who run a queer podcast, I think that's an argument that we are very mm. well aware of. Mm. Yeah. You know, this is something that we see with pretty much every new piece of news about a new piece of queer media that's coming out, particularly when it's big and mainstream. Mm. I'm thinking right now about the fact that Disney's just announced that they're going to have the, an openly gay character. Wait, have they? Um, yeah, so Jack Whitehall, the British comedian, is going to be playing 
a very flamboyantly gay character in uh, Jungle Cruise, I think it's called. What the hell is oh, Jungle God. Cruise? You have to go and see Jungle Cruise now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, when is that coming out, Jason? I don't know. Well, look um, forward to our Disney episode. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, as with the uh, criticism that we saw when uh, Beauty and the Beast came out last mm-hmm. year with the character of LeFou is that, you know, you're talking about, well, are stereotyped presentations of... Is stereotyped representation still valuable representation? And, you know, mm. I think the answer we've kind of arrived at is that only if it's not the only representation that we're mm. seeing. And the yeah. other conversation we have when, like, literally any new queer movie comes out is when, you know, like, people essentially want it to be everything you know they want it to deal seriously with our issues but they also want it to only be light-hearted and like that's a reaction to the same issue right is that we just like don't have enough movies yet yeah yeah Mm. and like i was thinking when you were talking about how harris said that black women who criticized this novel were kind of seen as betraying Mm. themselves and betraying black women like we had this sort of debate for example with love simon that came out earlier mm. this year of people saying don't see this movie because it's about a white gay man and it's not good representation we need to represent more diverse voices and then other people saying if we critique this movie then we'll never get another queer movie like another mainstream queer movie like it's kind of a mm. similar argument of like if black women what? critique I... this they've betrayed themselves and then they'll never get more books like this but at mm. the same time this book isn't perfect yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When Love, Simon came out, it was absolutely framed as a moral obligation to see it mm-hmm. um, in a way that was really weird and intense. I'll actually go with the, the last critic that I read. But this was uh, Steve uh, Weisenberger, who generally I found his criticism to be a little bit paternalistic. Okay. And he says a fair, he says talks a fair bit about how the novel... Um, has a fairly inconsistent timeline. Like, he has these very, like, nitpicky critiques, which, to be fair... Okay, (laughs) CinemaSins. Yeah, he's basically the CinemaSins guy. And he's doing this in pursuit of saying, overall, that people are framing their criticism of this novel as if it's aiming to be purely historical, where he kind of agrees more with Harris, where he finds it more of an allegorical Mm -hmm. um, tale. Okay. And... He thinks that it's la- it's actually a novel that's largely about religion and kind of takes particular focus with um, Shug's sort of depiction of a sort of pantheistic philosophy. Mm. Mm. Um, but I think the point that I was trying to get to that kind of relates to what we've been talking about is that uh, he talks about how because of that f- because of the focus that he thinks Walker had when she was writing the novel, and regardless of whether or not I think he's correct, I think what he says in response to that is interesting, is that he says it was inevitable that certain kinds of critics would struggle with the apparent moral relativism and the lack of realistic historicity capable of translating her fiction into something politically useful. And I think that re- that last bit, I think is interesting in terms of the discussion that we've just had in terms Mm. of thinking about whether a novel stands on its own merits, but also what particularly a novel that talks so fairly overtly about a lot of different political issues, Mm -hmm. what use it has in discourse. Um, And I think that's something we see with, you know, any piece of queer fiction that's, you know, even stuff that's just come out, but especially things that are a little bit older, is that we sort of say, well, how valuable is this depiction now? Mm. And how should we continue to promote it or should we kind of let it fall away? Mm. I think that there, particularly in regards to the queer representation of this novel, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on that we still don't see a lot of. And that, yeah, like, you know, that's the only regard to which I can speak with any kind of personal authority Mm. but Mm. i think that there's certainly value in that respect to this novel even though you know it's now 36 years old and i mean it's set 80 in the lead up to world war ii Mm. um which was something i i was very much unclear as to when exactly this novel was set (laughs) um originally because i didn't quite grasp that it had gone for 30 or 40 years by the end oh yeah okay um and so when i read the wikipedia article and it was like set in the early 1900s and i'm like 
oh, okay, wait, so what war are we talking about? <laughs> and then it was like 30 or 40 years, and I'm like, oh, this makes more sense now. Yeah. Um, so clearly I wasn't reading this as carefully as Weisenberger, but I think he was very much going through with the cinema sins, like, notes <laughs> style um, of reading. But yeah, I think that this novel still has a lot of really valuable things to say, particularly in regards to queer identity, but probably also in regards to racial politics and specifically the kind of... Um, relationship between african-americans and africans that Mm. we don't see a huge amount of even now Mm. yeah yeah i think it's definitely and we mentioned that before it's still talking about things that aren't really talked about in mainstream media yeah and until we have more novels that through whatever means make it into kind of mainstream consciousness consciousness that talk about these issues like this book still has great value well i mean it can become dated and still be productive yeah, yeah. No, that's that's true too. Yeah, and I'm not saying it will lose its value when we get more books that deal with these issues, but you know, its value will change. Yeah. So whilst there are definitely a lot more things that we could talk about in regards to this novel, Celia's relationship with religion, and we could certainly talk more about the uh, colonial aspects of this novel, but we uh, don't want to sit here for three hours. <laughs> and with that. We've been Queer as Fiction. I'm Jason. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. You can find us on social media, uh, Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook as Queer as Fact. Uh, You can also email us at queerasfact at gmail.com if you have any particular commentary that you want to make about this episode or suggestions for future episodes, either for this series, Queer as Fiction, or for the main Queer as Fact series. You can also leave us reviews on iTunes or on other podcasting websites. If you do leave us a review on iTunes, we very much appreciate those because they allow us to reach a wider audience. You can also now find us on Spotify, which we think is really exciting. And yeah, so if you want to give us a listen on there and um, follow us on there, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Our next episode will be coming out on the 1st of September when Eli will be talking about the American jazz musician Billy Tipton. With that, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.